0: this time, I invite you to, to locate your sermon outline one last time in this sermon series and to turn to Article 10 of the Evangelical Free Church of America Statement of Faith uh, and just unfold it so that you have that article on one side and then you have the statement of faith, or rather the outline on one side and the statement of faith on the other. That'll, that'll serve you best this morning. Um, and you are certainly welcome to turn to these passages, but you may... Um, Also, just simply take this in, as the passages should be in front of you. We've reached the final Sunday in our preaching series, Evangelical Convictions, a study of the EFCA Statement of Faith, and so this morning is singular. We want to focus on our response to the gospel. We're going to explore what it means to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. What do we believe, and more importantly, what does the Bible teach about our response to the gospel, and therefore, too, about the eternal destiny of every human being who has ever lived? Well, follow along with me, and we'll discover what the Free Church believes about this. Article 10 of our Statement of Faith says this We believe that God commands everyone, everywhere, to believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and new earth to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. That's what we believe. Is that what you believe? If you take away one thing from this morning's sermon, let it be this. We believe that the gospel requires a response that has eternal consequences. We believe, because the Bible teaches this, we believe that the gospel requires a response, a response that has eternal consequences consequences. Now, within that statement, it has at least two truths in it that set the gospel message apart from, from any other reality in this world. What we do with the message of the person and work of Jesus Christ matters supremely. It matters preeminently, and we're going to see two ways that it does today. We believe the gospel requires a response, that has eternal consequences. So, first point today, your response to the gospel Is absolutely essential. Your response to the gospel is absolutely essential. Allow me once again to read the first sentence of Article 10. We believe that God commands everyone, everywhere, to believe the gospel by turning to Him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. To whom is the gospel relevant? Everyone, everywhere. This language here is profoundly biblical because it's exactly what the Apostle Paul says. We just heard it read, Acts 17, 30. Preaching in Athens to the pagan philosophers of his day, Paul says in Acts seventeen thirty, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Which people? All people. Where are these people? These people are everywhere, (laughs) every location. Using a similar language in Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is addressed to everyone. Everyone everywhere. Have you ever taken a class or been through a presentation where the person up front is teaching, and you begin to discern that they're just no longer addressing you. They're just not talking to you anymore. They're not speaking your language. You know what I mean? You're listening carefully. I mean, you give it a good shot at the beginning, but it becomes clear that what they're talking up front about is just not of relevance to you, and so you check out. Maybe someone's doing that right now. I urge you not to, because that is not true of the gospel. People may deny its relevance. People may not understand its relevance, and that's a burden for the church to unpack the relevance of the gospel for our lives. But if I reject the gospel as irrelevant to my life, you know what you've learned about me? I am the one who is irrelevant, not the gospel. More fundamentally still, you'll notice how our response to the gospel is initiated. Our statement of faith puts it in very strong terms with this phrase. We believe that God commands everyone, everywhere, to believe the gospel. Commenting on this point, our free church leadership writes, The New Testament presents the gospel not simply as a helpful suggestion to implement or even an invitation to accept, but a command to obey. The gospel is a command. To obey, The New Testament proclamation along these lines is, is really persuasive. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says that when Jesus returns, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. Romans 10.16, speaking of his fellow Jews, Paul says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. We don't often talk that way, do we? The Bible does, routinely. Obedience to the gospel. Finally, Peter, writing of the judgment to come. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? You hear it? It's a language of obligation, of constraint, and of duty. And why? Because God commands it. He mandates that we respond to it. He's just not indifferent to our response to the gospel. How could he be? And What response does he command of us? What sort of obedience does the gospel demand? Well, this is where the message gets really sweet. Romans 1.5 is very clear on this point. It is the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Romans 1.5, Paul explains to the church in Rome that he and his colleagues have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Hmm, That's encouraging to me. As we say in our statement of faith, God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel. By turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus. That's a really helpful way to understand the nature of saving faith, actually. It breaks it up into its parts. Let's let's look at these. Two facets of saving faith are here in this sentence. First, repentance. And second, receiving. We'll look at each one briefly. As we do, notice that we're not looking at two different events. We're looking at two different aspects of the same event. If you want to know what it means to become a Christian, what it means to be born again, what does the new birth look like? Well, the beginning of it is this two-sided coin, repentance and receiving. So first, repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is grief. It's grief over your sin. It's sorrow over your sin. It is renouncing your sin and turning toward Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is. It's grief over sin, sorrow over sin, renouncing our sin and turning toward Jesus. What is sin? Well, in the words of Christian hip-hop artist Timothy Brindle, sin is any thought that's not morally pure. Sin is loving anything else more than the Lord. Sin is breaking His laws, forsaking His commandments. Sin is hatred of God. It is blatantly Satanic. Simplest way I know how to put sin is just this. Sin is selfishness. It's it's a self-orientation. Sin is putting myself first with God and others taking a back seat. Jerry Bridges once wrote, every sin we commit regardless of how insignificant it seems to us is an assault on God's infinite glory how could it not be God takes a backseat to my desires my plans my life other people take a backseat to my desires my plans my life this is repulsive sin is a radical fundamental orientation of oneself around oneself this is an assault on God's glory Therefore, repentance is a grieving of this kind of selfishness. It's a grieving that we live this way, that this is our heart's instinct and a sincere desire to turn away from selfishness and toward God for cleansing, for forgiveness, for reconciliation and redemption. You say, well, how do you, how do you get that? That's the negative side of the coin. What's the positive side? Well, here's the second facet of saving faith, and it's really sweet. Receiving. 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 Receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1.12 holds out one of the simplest and sweetest promises in all the Bible. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Isn't that beautiful? It's the heart of the Christian faith. Reaching out with empty hands and receiving the fullness of eternal life through what God has done for us in Christ. Jesus' death on the cross pays the penalty for our sin. Jesus' triumphant resurrection out of the grave assures us that sin's power can be broken in our lives. So God commands that we repent and receive Jesus. Will you today? Have you, do you receive Jesus Will you come to Jesus today? Will you repent of your sin and receive the Savior? If you do, you become a new creation today. Receive the Savior. Today is the day of salvation. And if not today, know this, that your response to the gospel is not something that you can put off indefinitely. In fact, your response to the gospel, even if you think you're delaying response to the gospel, you're currently responding to the gospel. God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel, and that includes you and me. And He threatens terrible things if we will not be happy in Jesus, in His Son. Your response to the gospel is not in any sense optional. For one day, you will permanently respond one way or the other. Your response to the gospel is absolutely essential. And for those of us who are here today, and you know Jesus, I just ask you, when was the last time you unfolded that message for someone who doesn't know him? The gospel requires a a summons. We don't command other people to believe, but God does through the message of the gospel as we encourage people to come, win people to come, woo people to come. When was the last time that you shared that message of the gospel with an unbeliever within your web of relationships? So this first point is just as relevant to believers. Your response to the gospel, if you are a Christian, is absolutely essential. When was the last time you made it, known? Second point today. Your response to the gospel is unavoidably eternal. Your response to the gospel is unavoidably eternal. So second sentence, Article 10. The EFCA Statement of Faith goes on to say, we believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and new earth. The second point here is that your response to the gospel is unavoidably eternal. Eternal. In one sense, all this second point does is just put an exclamation point on the first, doesn't it? Our response to the gospel is absolutely essential, made all the more momentous by the fact that our response to the gospel is absolutely eternal. And there's no undoing our response to the gospel. In fact, right now, as you respond to the gospel, your heart is either softening or hardening the message that you're hearing. You see the flow of this logic? Let me me say it another way. The eternality of our choice of Christ or against Him highlights just how essential it is that we respond to the gospel in a God-honoring way. And not only those of us who know Him and are fully aware of what's on the line here Um, with people either receiving or reject him. I mean, this has to motivate us to get the word out about him. It has to. Eternity, from our perspective, is in the balance when we're sharing the gospel with someone who doesn't know Christ. And I say from our perspective because this is not in the balance from God's perspective. Not in eternity, because God has purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. That's Article 1 of our Statement of Faith. And this fact, God's sovereign design of salvation, God's settling of heaven and hell from all eternity, this does not diminish or deter our evangelistic intensity. It never has for me. In the Bible, it's the other way around. Don't let anyone ever tell you that a robust affirmation of the doctrine of election or predestination would keep you from evangelism. It's the other way around. Um, God's sovereignty sovereignty and salvation is the ground of our evangelistic intensity. So listen to Paul from from a prison cell now, 2 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. 2 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, Paul says, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is through faith in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So God's sovereignty and salvation means that He knows that when we are in the boat on the water of our mission, He tells us, you know what, throw your line in. I guarantee you will catch some fish. I've made sure from all eternity that there will be some who respond to the gospel, many. And furthermore, from our perspective, heaven and hell are hanging in the balance as we do it because we don't know who's going to come to the Lord before we share that message. So our response to the gospel is unavoidably eternal. Um, The first article, you'll notice that we affirm Uh, The first truth here, we affirm in Article 10, is that we believe that God will raise the dead bodily. Second sentence. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily. Now, which dead? All dead. Believer and unbeliever alike. The biblical doctrine of the resurrection of the dead knows no distinction. Just as everyone everywhere is commanded to believe the gospel, so everyone everywhere will be raised on the last day bodily. The Bible's anything but unclear on this matter. Isaiah 26, 11 promises the Jews, God's ancient covenant people, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise, the earth will give birth to the dead, awake and sing for joy. Daniel 12, 2, also in the Old Testament, affirms not only the resurrection of God's people, but of all people. Daniel 12, 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And of course, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives the longest, most elaborate description of the resurrection of the body for believers in the entire world. Bible. This is not a passage that we're often very familiar with, so I'll read some portions of it. Here's just a sampling of what we read in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection of the body. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man death came, so by man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and as in Christ, all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. But someone will ask, "How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come?" Well, God gives a body as He has chosen. What is sown is perishable; what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown in natural body, but raised a spiritual body. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are also those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. We shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body shall put on immortality. Why is God going to do that? Why is he going to raise the dead bodily? One answer to that question is so that he can judge us for what we have done in our bodies. Though the future judgment is taught consistently from the Old Testament to the New, I just want to affirm it with one text that will tie this truth of judgment with what we just looked at, namely the resurrection. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, 11, Paul says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So on the last day, God will raise the dead bodily and he will bring each person in the history of the world before the bar of His holy justice. And He will proceed to evaluate our lives according to what we have done. All of us will be judged by our works. The future judgment, let this stick, is a judgment of works. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15 paint the scene. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, And him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, did you hear that? There was good news there. (laughs) We are judged by our work. That much is clear. But this passage that I just read affirms something much deeper and much more wonderful. We are judged by our works, but we are saved by God's grace. We are judged by our work, but we are saved by God's grace. It's called the book of life, which Revelation 13, verse 8 tells us was written before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4 affirms it too. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so though it turns out we are judged by our works, ultimately we are saved by God's grace. God's grace displayed in the Lamb who was slain. Can you imagine what this day will be like for your family or friends or neighbors or colleagues or classmates who don't know Jesus and have nowhere to run on that day? And they stand stripped before a holy God with nowhere to turn, commended to God only on the strength of their own good works, which are enough to damn, but not nearly enough to save. I hope that motivates you. That's why Paul says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one must receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The, the judgment, the reality of final judgment ought to motivate us to open our mouths, to talk to people we love about Jesus who are far from him. And remember, even though you may know people around you who are far from Jesus, if they're close to you, they're closer to Jesus than you might think. Jesus said it straight out in Matthew seven thirteen and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those are few who find it. There are only two ways to live. There are only two outcomes in this life. And they're described here in Article 10. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and new earth. Let's just look at each one of those briefly. We believe that God will assign the unbeliever to condemnation and to eternal conscious punishment. The simplest and most penetrating words I've ever read outside the Bible itself on hell come from the pen of John Piper. Listen to this. The word hell occurs in the New Testament 12 times. 11 on the lips of Jesus. Hell is not a myth created by dismal and angry preachers. Hell is the solemn warning of the Son of God who died to deliver sinners from its curse. We ignore it at great risk. He's right. Speaking to religious yet unbelieving Pharisees of his day, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? That's a good question for each one of us here today and for everybody on the planet. How are we going to escape being sentenced to hell? You get the sense from Jesus' language here? And also in Matthew 7, as we read that hell, far from being a rare or uncommon future for people, is actually the default setting for all people. It's what all people deserve, apart from the grace of God. We just heard Jesus say it in Matthew 7, 13, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. And Jesus described hell as the conscious eternal punishment, eternal conscious punishment. The only reason the free church holds such a strong view on this doctrine is that we are seeking to be faithful to the categories of our Savior. Nobody spoke of hell more often and more graphic categories than Jesus. In fact, the language in our statement of faith is rather abstract compared with the language of Jesus, who is much more vivid in his images, like unquenchable fire, outer darkness, eternal destruction. So if the biblical doctrine of hell fails to motivate us to move toward perishing people with compassion, there can be no doubt that the fault is not with the doctrine or with the Bible. The fault is with the believer. We believe that God will assign the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment. Now, you'll notice in the Free Church Statement of Faith in the same breath, because we believe the same Bible, We also believe that God will assign the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and new earth, which means no more suffering, no more sinning, and with the Savior forever on a renewed earth, forever. If you're a Christian, your future entails eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and new earth. I suspect that we don't dwell on this reality as often as we ought to. I think it would make a bigger impact if we did. Richard Baxter did. In the year 1649, Puritan pastor Richard Baxter wrote this. If there be so certain and glorious a rest for the saints... Why is there no more industrious seeking after it? One would think if one did but once hear of such unspeakable glory to be obtained and believed what he heard to be true, that he should be transported with the vehemency of his desire after it and should almost forget to eat and drink and should care for nothing else but how to get this treasure. And yet people hear of it. And profess to believe it as a fundamental article of their faith, and do as little mind it or labor for it as if they had never heard of such a thing, nor did believe one word they hear. End quote. Let's be different in this church. As we said in this church, we want to be so heavenly minded, we are of supreme good for this earth, maximum good for this earth, because we're heavenly minded. If you know Jesus, you are headed for eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heavens and new earth this earth with curse lifted death banished Satan vanquished the people of God vindicated and Jesus at the center of it all that is unspeakable joy that's your future if you know Jesus Your response to the gospel, for good or for ill, is unavoidably eternal. Now, we're out of time, so let me just outline this last point and maybe drive home an an application or two. The last bullet says this. Gospel-shaped theology creates gospel-shaped doxology. Gospel-shaped theology, that's the Evangelical Free Church Statement of Faith, creates gospel-shaped doxology. Final eight words in the EFCA Statement of Faith aren't just theology, not just words about God, but doxology, which is worship of God. It says, to the praise of His glorious grace. Amen. Our creed is shaped by the gospel from first to last, and so our hearts are drawn upward to worship the God of grace at the very last. The Bible ends with an amen, so our statement of faith ends with an amen. Gospel-shaped theology creates gospel-shaped doxology. So we believe the gospel requires a response that has eternal consequences. Your response to the gospel is absolutely essential, and your response to the gospel is unavoidably eternal. Gospel-shaped theology creates gospel-shaped doxology. Now, As we close, allow me just to add these these two next steps for each of us here. This is news we can use, but how so? What now? If we've got the gospel right, which I trust the Evangelical Free Church Statement of Faith does, what's our next move? I hope you know the answer to this question. If you have the gospel right, don't waste a minute more in getting the gospel out. That's the first next step. If you have the gospel right, get the gospel out. J.I. Packer, towering theologian, once said these three words. It's so wonderful and understated. Christianity is for sharing. Christianity is for sharing. And there's no better season than this one to say a good word for King Jesus. Thanksgiving is around the corner. Advent season is almost here. This is our season. Let's be lavish with the gift of the gospel this season. Don't be stingy with it. Get a list of five if you don't have one. See the cards on the information table in Fellowship Hall if you don't have a list of five. We'll have one there for you. And pray for five people who are far from Jesus. Care for them in tangible ways that they can see and share with them. Most importantly, share with them the message of the gospel that's transforming you. Invite people into your life, into your home, into your family, into your community group, and to this church, and to this place. Next Sunday, we'll begin a verse-by-verse study of the gospel of Luke. There is no better place for folks on your list of five to hear about the Savior than studying the gospel of Luke. Live your life in a winsome, open-handed invitation to lost people. If you got the gospel right, amen, then by all means, get the gospel out. Get it out. That's the first step. Second step as we close is for those of us who are with us today and interested in pursuing covenant membership. I know a number of you are but perhaps I don't know who all of you are. If you're not a covenant member of this church but you're interested in learning how you might become one, come and talk to me or to Pastor Seth or one of our elders. This sermon series has has already gone 90% of the distance in a covenant membership class because the first step in covenant membership is learning what doctrine we treasure but that's just what we believe Um, how about how do we live you may be familiar with our commitment to sound doctrine but are you familiar with our deep commitment to one another would you like to step into our circle of care and then come and talk to us the sermon series was designed especially with you in mind if you're not a covenant member There'll be an informational meeting on covenant membership right around the corner in December. So those are our next two steps. Do you have the gospel right? Get the gospel out. And two, if you're interested in becoming a covenant member, come talk to me, Pastor Seth, or one of our elders. We believe the gospel requires a response. What is your response today? Let's pray.